right, you guys. Episode 85 with Tony Gentlecourt and Lee Boyce is about to start. And this episode was just plain awesome. So we're going to get into my favorite show, Tony's favorite show, and Lee's favorite show that we're currently watching on Netflix. And probably the last, the first 10 to 15 minutes is us discussing Netflix shows. So hopefully you enjoy that. And then we're going to get really into the nitty gritty about deadlifting, squatting, uh, shoulder stability, like everything that you would think you would need to improve your deadlift and squat and just overall badassery in the gym we cover in this episode it's filled with a lot of great information and questions from our audience so without further ado let's get right into it with tony and lee here we go hey guys welcome back to another episode of cut the shit get fit I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today are two badasses in the industry. We have Tony Gentlecore and Lee Boyce. Say hello. What's up, everyone? How's it going? Uh, So to start off, I always like to break the ice and ask my guests, what do you guys got planned for the weekend? Do you Um, want to go first? Go ahead, Lee. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, my, my normal thing for hobbies-wise is, is movies, so I'm going to check something out for sure. Otherwise, just training. I have the weekend off of actual clients, which is uh, which is a refreshing break, so I'm just going to be relaxing otherwise. Nice. And me, like, I, you be, Lee and I actually text each other back and forth quite often on uh, the movies that we see. And uh, unfortunately, since my, my little guy was born, my, my movie-watching prowess has declined sharply. <laughs> so uh, I will be catching up on some sleep. And uh, it's actually Lisa's, my wife, it's her birthday this weekend. So we're going to be celebrating that. So we're going to be having dinner with some friends, and then we're having uh, people over on Sunday to celebrate, and which, will be, which will be fun. Sweet. Well, Tony, you can watch The Punisher on Netflix. It just came yes, out today. Yes, I, I, I have I have that queued. It's on my it's on my list. I have to, we Lisa and I first have to get through The Defenders. We haven't watched that oh, yet, yeah. so we have to watch that. Then we'll get to The Punisher. Um, yeah, so we we definitely there's so much good TV out right now. Like we're watching season two of Better Call Saul and. Um, there's just a lot great of great series. We, great, yeah. great series. Yeah, I actually one a, a client that I used to train when I was at Cresty is a producer on that show, and um, cool. so which which is kind of cool because I see her name up on the credits every time there's an episode. So uh, I have to definitely uh, shoot her an email to tell her I'm almost through season two. And uh, but um, but yeah, uh, Lee, what movie are you seeing this weekend? Just so I know. Um, I'm I'm thinking about um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Ah, yeah, that's playing at my theater down the street. I saw that. Like, I yeah, want to go see. It it, uh, it world premiered at my film fest in Toronto, and um, it apparently got very very strong reviews. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to it. It's probably going to do really well. Yep, What's that one that about? Enough? Um, well, basically, it's uh, Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson's a police officer who's not really taking uh, matters of racial injustice, if I'm not mistaken, into his own hands properly. And he's uh, sort of, I think he's sort of being pinned for a lot of racial profiling himself as well. And so um, Francis McDormand decides to take matters into her own hands, a civilian, and uh, posts really, really harsh messages against this cop and the cops in general um, on massive billboards that, when, that you see when you're entering. 
entering into the city and um, it causes some backlash and you know she's a little bit of a loose cannon herself so it's uh it's sort of like uh I don't know what to call it, vigilante work. I don't know. <laughs> and I think I, if I if I because I've read some of the reviews, I think it's supposed to be a dark comedy. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's, that, there's some comedy. That doesn't that. sound like a comedy, but it, supposedly it is. So I'm I'm definitely intrigued by it. Yeah. And it's got it's gotten rave reviews. It's gotten really good reviews. Sweet. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm gonna go actually go see Thor today after this. Actually. Ah, <laughs> nice. Well played. That's something. Yeah, yeah. We Lisa and I. I might have to take take her out to that for her birthday. I don't know if that would be an appropriate birthday present, but um, that might be more so Surprise. for me. Guys. <laughs> hey, babe. Who says romance is dead? We're gonna go see Thor. Yeah. <laughs> Thor is the only Marvel franchise that I have not uh, kept up with. That's the only one that I have to actually go back and watch the first and second one. Yeah, like I. Um, that's not. It's not even. It's not my favorite. Of, of I mean I'm not a huge Marvel fan. I'm actually more of a Netflix Marvel fan than I am of a movie Marvel fan. Hmm. Uh, outside of Iron Fist, like that was kind of so so. I'm not a big fan of Iron Fist. That I thought that was horrible. As <laughs> <laughs> did most people. I was like watching through the whole season. I'm like, okay, it's gonna get good. It's gonna get good, and it just never happened. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a bit. It was a bit disappointing for sure. I still think Daredevil. Out of all of them, were kind of like. The best kind of put together story, I think. Yeah, especially season one. Season one was uh, a nice mix of like good storytelling, uh, appropriate level of violence. Uh, you know, it was just yeah, it was just a really good show. What other TV shows are you guys watching right now? Um, well, me personally, like, uh, got a few, a few series that I'm into. Like, I'm, I'm up to date with Better Call Saul, which is one of my favorites right now, but sort of like in progress. And, um, believe it or not, like, I was, I was really into House of Cards as well. And now it's sort of, uh, you know, just so untimely, number one, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it sucks that it's, it's no longer going to be yeah. in, in, uh, in the running anymore. So, yeah. what can you do, right? What can you do? Uh, but uh, other than those two, I was into a couple of Marvel series. Uh, Luke Cage, I was kind of into as well. I liked yep. that. And um, what else? Oh, there's a show that's filmed in my city called Suits. And it's not the yeah. greatest, but it's still all right. And it's it's definitely good for loose entertainment. Just like um, like a show like Empire, you know? Those two shows, for me, they're just like the, the mindless entertainment fun. And I'm... Uh, Sorry, go on. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. I was going to say Suits is, like, it's entertaining because it's, like, every scene is someone walking to someone's office, yelling Thank at their face, you. and then leaving. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, I've had so many jokes about that. It's hilarious. That's, like, it's, like, the cliche of that every single time. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, what about you? What are you watching right now? Uh, you know what? The one show that Lisa and I crushed, like we haven't we haven't binged a lot of shows lately for obvious reasons, um, but we binge watched Mindhunter, uh, which we really liked. Like I am a huge, huge, huge David Fincher fan. I will watch anything that man directs or writes, and um, he directed the first two episodes and the last two episodes of the series. And um, the book Mindhunter is actually. The, the, the one book that got Lisa into psychology back in the day, because it's all about the start of forensic psychology, about how the FBI started interviewing uh, like dangerous people in prison, like psych psychopaths, 
mm-hmm. and um, and learning how to how to best um, what's the word I'm looking for um, profile serial killers and pedophiles and um, just shady people in general. So it's a really really good show. We loved it. We really liked it. Sweet. Right now, like we're watching. This is like a guilty pleasure of mine, but I'm watching Riverdale. Have you guys seen that? Uh, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> I have not, but I've heard about it. The only, the only reason why I'm like half into that is just because like I'm quite familiar with those old Archie comic books from like 70s, 80s, whatever it is, and uh, I'm just liking like just comparing the characters they're portraying on the screen to how they were portrayed in those comic books, and like just seeing the real life versions of them. It's interesting, and some of them are way off, and some of them. Are kind of spot on so it's it's just interesting to see them develop uh, for me it's like i know that they film in like langley where i live so i'm like oh, constantly dude, cool. yeah yeah so i'm like constantly looking at where they're filming i'm like oh i've been there oh i know where that yeah. place is but like the storyline sometimes just goes so out of hand and you're just like this would never happen in real life like come on what is this <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Riverdale, Riverdale, and Suits, both of those are yeah. kind of unrealistic, uh, unrealistic shows that are just for the sake of the mindless entertainment. And it's almost like they're self-aware. It's like they know that. Yeah. Uh, so let's actually get into it because now we're kind of going off topic. But, <laughs> I'm sure people just want to hear us talk about tele- TV movies <laughs> yeah, for, for like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, like, I wanted to get into deadlifting because I know you two will uh, talk about this topic a lot. And, you know, there's a lot of, like, heavy lifters out there when they kind of hit their, say, their first 300-pound deadlift. And automatically every guy who hits 300, like, fuck yeah, I'm going to go 400. So I was kind of wondering what, how would you guys progress someone who's trying to get to that goal of 400 and kind of what your progression is to get someone from a 300-pound deadlift to a 400-pound deadlift. Whoever wants um, to start. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I'll start. Basically, well, for me, it's... I was having a conversation. I remember with Mike Mahler when I was doing his uh, one of his, an interview with him, and we were talking about deadlifting as well. And one of the things that was a really important point that was raised is that pulling especially with a deadlift particularly just that exercise like it's almost like it's its own individual set of skills required depending on how many reps you're going for and how your your style of pulling is right so pulling sets of three is very different than pulling sets of five or sets of ten you know Um, pulling dead stop is very different than pulling tap and go you know, like all these different sort of methods that are in within that one exercise, um, they, they're really important to practice as a skill on their own, in my opinion, first, and uh, sort of staying consistent with one at a time rather than continuing to mix it up. And uh, so if your goal is straight up strength, then I'd definitely be training in the lower rep ranges as more of a, of a concentrated effort, maybe singles, doubles, and triples, and that's basically it. Uh, maybe even utilizing different uh, loading patterns like wave loading is a, is a good way to make progressions that I've seen some, some gains with. So um, those, are, those are the main things that I think about is just focusing on like a lot of like low rep training and also uh, doing different uh, loading techniques like wave loading or maybe even one and a half reps or paused reps and so on just to, to edify some, some uh, technical things. I also like the use of isometrics as well so I can overload the bar and use 100% of your max at different segments of your lift. And uh, those are great, great, uh, great little tools that I kind of use. Yeah, you know, and to the piggyback on what what Lee was talking about, like I do think um, figuring out the appropriate variation based off leverages and body type and you know 
levers and lengths of limbs and stuff like that does come into play because whatever's going to set people up for um, uh, in a better position, I think is, is definitely going to come into play. Because I do think at that weight range, when we're talking about 300 pounds into the mid 300s, into the 400s, Honestly, like, uh, there's probably a lot of guys that could, could muscle up a pretty decent mid-300 lift, maybe even 400. It's not going to look very good. Um, and when, if that's the case, then it is a matter of putting people in a better position so they can actually express their true strength. So um, really, really meticulous detail or attention to detail when it comes to technique is going to be paramount. And I couldn't agree more with Lee where I'm definitely going to be focusing more on the singles, doubles, and triples end of the spectrum rather. And I rarely ever program anything above five reps when someone's trying to build their deadlift. I, I just don't feel um, there's a lot of use for that because I just think people tend to putter out uh, and, and, and technique kind of goes to shit once you get past five reps. Um, so that's going to be uh, a lot of what I, what, how I approach it. And then um, just setting markers for people. Like I'm, honest, I'm actually a big fan of, of having somebody hit a, a challenging double or a challenging triple each week uh, and then following suit with lower or lower percentage-based speed work or speed-ish work is what I say, which is more or less the way for them to just work on their technique with, you know, just accumulating volume uh, and making sure that everything's on point, is pristine, um, and, and then they're just going to set themselves up for the best success possible. What, what do you guys think of, like, um, going into, like, a high rep deadlift with lightweight to kind of break through a plateau? Like, are you guys fans of that, or is it something you don't even consider? I, I personally incorporate some higher rep. I, I don't know what you consider high rep, but I don't ever go. I don't go above ten reps for a deadlift with any load. Uh, but um, I do incorporate that rep range in itself uh, from time to time, uh, depending on what the client's goal is. But especially just to kill any CNS fatigue, and I shouldn't say kill any of it, but uh, to just while you're dealing with that, if you're like lifting a lot of heavy weights and you're in a, in a program or whatnot, you know, breaking that with a little bit of a higher rep training, so you're more focused on different energy systems, number one, muscular fatigue and maybe your aerobic system and just the conditioning aspect of it, rather than having to zap your nervous system every time with uh, heavy doubles and heavy triples, because, you know, this is a lift where you're using, you're probably going to have the most weight on the bar of any other lift that you do as well. What you deadlift, right? Um, most people have that's their strongest lift, the most that they can pick up versus like a bench or a squat or, a, or an overhead press or whatever else. And um, so, with that said, you know, if you're constantly moving hundreds and hundreds of pounds off the ground for doubles or triples, it's gonna it's gonna take its toll on the nervous system, your your CNS, and it's gonna fatigue it at some point, especially if you're doing it more than once per week. So. Um, sometimes just breaking things down and even though it might be more um, instantaneously fatiguing by doing high rep deadlift training, um, it will still be a little bit of a salvage to your nervous system and, uh, you know, keeping good form so that you can protect your spine and avoid technical breakdown. Use light loads. So I, I use that uh, for that particular reason, especially. Yeah, and if you look at a lot of uh, Berkochansky stuff, I mean, he does incorporate um, AMRAP sets or max max repetition sets here and there just to kind of break what Lee was talking about. So, you know, and at the end of the day, the answer is it depends. <laughs> you know, like if I'm if I'm working with somebody and I see on a week to week basis how they're progressing, and then they might come in one day and we're supposed to hit a heavy double, a heavy triple, or whatever, and they just don't feel it that day. Like they were up late the night before. Um, 
yeah, the deadlift is a very neurally taxing lift. I would argue is probably the most neurally taxing. Um, so if I have to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut our losses and just maybe do um, some lighter fives or even up into the ten rep range, then then we're gonna do that. It'll definitely get people a little bit of a CNS break and um, you know still get a, a great training effect in. Yeah, I was, I was just like, I gonna say that like when I train my clients and I change up their program where we're gonna go lighter on their deadlift and do like eight to ten reps. It's almost like they tell me like, oh, this feels like amazing. I don't feel like complete shit coming in and out every week. And I'm like, and yes, I, yeah. And I think it's so important because submaximal training is awesome, great training. Like we don't have to make them grinders every time. We don't have to live super like uh, there's, I just worked with a female client of mine not too long ago. Who's a trainer herself. She's actually a coach here in Boston and she walked in with a 300 pound deadlift, which is pretty fucking strong for, for a female lifter, right? Like that she's, she was a very good lifter and she was, she wanted, she came to me cause she wanted to work on her deadlift cause she was prepping for, um, I forget in the strong first universe, like there's a, there's a particular event they do that includes barbells. I forgot yeah. the name of it. Um, but she was training for that and she wanted to kind of hone her deadlift technique and see how far she could take her deadlift. So we worked together for about eight to 10 weeks. Um, um, and remember, she had a 300-pound deadlift. For 10 weeks, the heaviest lift I had her do was 250 pounds. We didn't go above 250. Um, we just did some maximal training, making sure every rep was pristine, making sure every rep was fast, that she felt good. She wasn't grinding out reps every week. And she hit a 50-pound PR. She hit 350. Wow. So we worked we worked 50 pounds under her, her PR, and she hit a 50-pound PR. <laughs> so um, there's a lot to be said about in doing more sub-maximal training uh, where we're sticking in the 75 to 85% range. Maybe now and then we're hitting a 90% lift. Um, you know, I do think that's a big mistake a lot of people make is week in and week out, they're hitting 90% plus doing heavy singles and they're, it's, they're, it's just killing their CNS. So, um, you know, we don't, you don't have to do that in order to improve your deadlift. Lee, did you want to add anything to that? Um, well, I just agree with it all. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a That'd huge be hilarious. Point. He's like, disagree. I disagree with <laughs> <It's> that. Bullshit. <laughs> you know, no, it's a, it's a huge point that he just raised and it's a very important one. And it's something that I sort of, uh, I advocate as well is just the use of submaximal loads and like people can't be afraid like this is a that's a living testimony just to show that you know if you don't lift your exact 90% of your 1RM or you shy away from like what textbook would define as strength training as pure strength training where you're in your 1 to 3 rep range or whatever we act like all of a sudden our PRs are going to go out the window because we're not training in a certain percentage and we're not staying married to that. And um, it's it's a very one-track-minded, narrow-minded, and not really high-training IQ way to think because of all the things that he just listed. So um, personally, I, I do, like, if, listen, if somebody was to take, like, an entire year off of deadlifting and they stayed active otherwise with their other lifts, I guarantee you that their PR wouldn't drop that significantly or not as significantly as they might expect it to drop when they go back and try it again after that year is over. You know, it's not like all of a sudden your 500-pound deadlift will go down to, like, 275 just because you weren't doing the lift and you were staying active. Like, it's it's it's, it's very silly to think that way, and we, we get uh, sort of caught up in our own minds in, in those uh, capacities. So, um, yeah, looking for a little bit more 
um, higher rep ranges, lower percentages, focusing on things like accelerating the bar, using advanced lifting methods with the with the bar, um, doing things with perfect form uh, and lighter weight. Like the, all you're doing is improving the quality of your lift, so that when it comes down to that one RM attempt, you know it's only going to have just better, I don't know, technical elements to it once you're going into it. So um, yeah, I agree. And um, you know, like my sort of I don't know how to say it, but my sort of uh, theme that I've really been trying to push lately has been you know a big question of the the importance of strength and strength and strength work all the time so um yeah like i'm, I'm right on board with that thinking of just scaling things back a little bit and you could even still see a little bit of um uh, positive benefits from from uh, uh doing it from doing those those higher rep ranges and there there's a lot of if you if you look at a lot of the most popular strength training programs that people follow 531 juggernaut method um etc uh the bulk of of their training volume is within that 75 to 85 percent range so they're not they're not going balls to the wall all the time and i would argue that one of the best books i've read in in, in recent years easy strength by dan john and pavel mm-hmm. kind of elucidates that that point too like you know, I would much rather my clients and athletes leave a session feeling like they, they could do more or they want to do more than to pound them in the ground every single session. And, and don't get me wrong. There is there's a time and place and and um, uh, that we want to uh, feel like shit after a workout. Like sometimes that, that, that's just going to happen, but it should not be a, a regular occurrence. And with the deadlift in particular, I just think it's so, so, so important to make sure that you are in, in good positions and making sure every rep is, is fast. Because uh, it's just most people aren't able to express their, their strength because they're just in a, a bad back position or you know, they're just, they're, they're just not able to express their strength. So if I can just get them to train with a lower weight, um, even if it is doing singles, doubles, triples, uh, it's just, it's just a win-win in my book. Okay. So what do you guys think of like training your core for say the deadlift or a back squat? Cause I find like with some of my clients that are general population, like they want to increase their load so much, but sometimes they hit a plateau where, you know, they lose tension, like things just don't look right. And you're like, you know what, maybe if we actually got your core a little bit stronger to keep that spine neutral and strong, maybe that's the missing link. And I was wondering, like, what do you guys think about that? Uh, I completely agree with it again. Like when it comes to core strength, like you're transferring forces from bottom to top when you're doing a squat or deadlift. So you do need to have nice, nice, good, strong trunk muscles in order to, to create uh, the proper bracing, create the proper tension and uh, to, you know, just con- complete your chain of force into the bar. Um, we're making a movement away from the floor in both of those exercises, the squat and the deadlift. And so it's very important that your trunk muscles are involved and very active and engaged. One thing that um, um, I, earlier in my in my um, training career that I've been told all the time was that you shouldn't really um, fatigue your abdominals between sets or between sets of heavy deadlifting and so on. And there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, if somebody's abdominal muscles have a problem even engaging during exercises, you know, you can do specific exercises between your your um, between your sets of deads or your sets of squats that can actually, you know, help them engage during your actual set. And uh, it doesn't mean you have to crush them or do a set of like 45 reps or anything like that. You can do a set of lower repetitions just to keep them on, turn them on, and get them active to help uh, to help just strengthen the entire lift and, and bolster the lift so that you'll have a proper pull. 
But to answer your question, yeah, it's 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 all about the trunk muscles. It's, it's a huge part of your deadlift and your squat because it's a compound movement, and the compound movements rely on that. Yeah, you. Uh, I think it's a very narrow-minded way of thinking whenever I read an article from a coach or a trainer and they say, oh, if you're squatting, deadlifting, and doing the compound movements, that's all the core training you need. Um, I just think that's flat out wrong. <laughs> and, uh, um, and uh, you know, I, I just read a fantastic book by, by Stuart McGill called Gift, Gift of Injury uh, with Brian Carroll. Um, and that, that's a guy who's a pretty, pretty strong individual, uh, 800 pound, uh, I believe he was maybe 700, 800 pound deadlifter, um, elite power lifter, like his total is like over 2,400, um, got hurt and he did, uh, bird dogs, dead bugs, planks, uh, core training, uh, to get healthy and he, and he still does it. And, uh, you know, who are we, I mean, this is a, this is an elite level power lifter and he, he felt it was kind of important to, to do those core strengthening exercises to, to help keep him healthy. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 you know, with, with my own training and with the training of my clients and athletes, like we're doing a lot of breathing planks and RKC planks and, pal off presses and dead bugs and just because we you you have to train the core uh, a little bit more specifically um and making sure that we're not uh that making sure more uh, importantly that we're maintaining and respecting tension because if they can't do it doing a dead bug they're, they're sure as hell not going to do it when they set up for a squat or a deadlift so you got to build context on the floor um before we start loading people with with heavy loads yeah, and even if you think about it from just the most simplistic point of view of like, because what we're saying here is that what, what a lot of people will say is that you don't need to train the synergistic muscle if the big movement covers it, right? And that's kind of the idea with the deadlift too, even though it's not really a thing about synergy, but the fact that, oh, deadlifting and squatting are all you need for core strength and whatever, whatever. Well, okay, if you wanted stronger biceps, would you really just focus on doing your pull-ups and chins? Personally, I wouldn't. I would also include some direct arm training or whatnot to get my biceps stronger in, spe in specificity, right? And Because uh, they're always going to turn out to be some kind of a weak link to hinder just the, the strength or the efficacy of your pull-ups. Um, if, you if you want stronger uh, triceps, would you only be doing bench press all the time? Like, it's not really the smartest way to think about it from that angle and from that perspective, not only just with regards to strength, but hypertrophy as well if you're looking to build muscle. So uh, from that angle, like, yeah, it just makes more sense that if you yeah. want a stronger core, if you need a stronger core for your deads, the answer is not just to continue doing more deadlifts. The answer yeah. is to do more core training as well. You have to, you have to get in there and um, make it specific to the, to, the, to the need that you have. And anecdotally, Lee, I, at, uh, let me know if you agree with this. I, I, I can't tell you how many in my years as a coach with, with pretty high-level athletes, I mean, it's pretty surprising how many come in and can't do a push-up well. Um, yeah. It's actually very surprising. I'm just like, what the hell? How were you able to play your sport? Like, um, it just shows how well. It just shows how good athletes are at compensating. But exactly, um, exactly. But if I get honestly, like, if I improve somebody's ability to do a, a push up, which in the grand scheme of things, what we're talking about here is lumbar pelvic control, you know, which is core training. So yeah. now that we get them better at doing a push up, almost inevitably I'm going to see an improvement in their deadlift and their squat, not only in the numbers, but just, and that, that's not even the important part, but just their, their ability to be able to, to do them well um, and clean up movement. Um, it, it's actually 
fantastic. So and and push-ups are actually a great core exercise. I think if we look at a lot of EMG studies, I think uh, a push-up is actually one of the ones that activate everything the most. So uh, as far as far as synchronous um, uh, firing of of all the, the deep musculature, the core musculature, and everything we're looking to fire. So um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, again uh, it's a very narrow-minded way of thinking for anyone to say, oh, we don't need to do direct core training. Um, it's just I I just personally just think it's super wrong. Yeah, I, I sort of agree. I'm gonna have to agree with that too. It's it's just not uh, it's not feasible for somebody to think that. And um, you know, like at the same time, we also have to think about the train of thought that a lot of people might have. Might, might people with their with their um, their education background or what they're influenced by the most. So if you are influenced by, you know, hammering out the big three all the time, and maybe you did that yourself competing and uh, doing the big three all the time, and those are the lifts that you focus on, well, you might be a little bit biased towards it versus maybe taking advice from somebody who's more of a generalist or somebody who deals with more people who do have weak cores all the time or something like that, you know? So, um, you know, it's also just worth it to, uh, to take a look at who, not who you're learning from, but just what your general spectrum of education is. Like, what what is the influence there? And you know, like, so to hear that an actual powerlifter was focused on doing direct core training because he found it beneficial, it just behooves us to think um, to think outside the box with those kinds of things as well. Yeah, and I think. Uh, sorry, I was gonna say, like, um, you know, if you look at our industry, like, people keep going back to bird dog variations and dead bug variations constantly. So you kind of have to just go with the trend almost like if people are always going back to the basics there's probably something important in there so i'm at the point in my this is my 11th year doing this now so i'm at the point now where i'm actually beginning to see the revolving door and that that you know things come back around full circle where stuff was trending for a bit and then research says that uh, the basic push-up is better and then people are ostracizing this exercise and then four years later research says actually this is the way you should be doing it and so on and so forth so like it, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of time for it to come around but it comes around and the things that are sort of tried to and true have always been kind of like the basic things and um you know it really puts into uh deep thinking about a lot of different like super scientific methods that are out there and a lot of uh, research that's out there and a lot of uh, a lot of just uh, methods that are used to train because at the end of the day how much stuff do we really need to know in order to have a good solid workout that keeps us safe and healthy and gives us results if people were getting jacked and strong in 1972 then what does that say about our training today? And they didn't know one-third of the stuff that we know now. Yeah, and I, I honestly, like, who's to say that we have to do all this different shit anyways? Like, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the dead bug, and I've uh, there's so many iterations of the dead bug that I can put in. I, I can progress it in innumer innumerable ways. Uh, and I've made some pretty strong guys uh, quiver doing a dead bug correctly. So... Um, you know, that's not to say that that's the end-all, be-all exercise, but it, but it, it is kind of deemed like a quote-unquote basic, simple exercise. Uh, but when people do it well and they do it correctly, um, they, there's there's some eyebrows that are raised, that's for sure. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get into, because I had Tim Henriquez on the show too, and we were talking about mm. powerlifting, and he said most of the time a lot of guys who kind of hit a plateau in the deadlift if you look at their squat numbers, most likely it's a lot less than their deadlift. And you'll usually get people to focus on their weak lift first to see the other one to like increase in weight. So do you guys kind of advocate at all that, you know, your squat should be, I don't know, say close to your deadlift numbers or what's kind of your opinion on that? 
Um, well, <laughs> I'm kind of the worst person to ask that question just because of the fact that whenever someone asks me stuff about those sort of things, I always get into a conversation that asks like 25 questions back at them. Yeah. Like, what are what is the training age of the individual? What is his experience under the bar? Um, how tall is the individual? What are his leverages like? What is his anthropometry in general? Does he have long legs, short legs? Is he more built for deadlifting or more built for squatting? I can go on and on and on with this, right? And um, that is is the like the gigantic it depends to answer the question that you just asked so looking at the weak lift might work especially if you're in an arena where um, you're mostly dealing with a lot of really serious strength athletes who might have a similar frame to one another in general because of how great they are at doing this or to make them great at doing this sort of thing and uh, looking to go from that high level to an even more elite level of, of training um, but me dealing with a lot of general population clientele, um, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit of a different, trickier game in, in that department. So uh, that's why I ask those questions before I can sort of make a, a definitive answer on what I would do or what method I would take. Um, because I have some people who, you know, they can't deadlift for the life of them, but their squat is pretty good. Or they, they have a very strong overhead press, but they squat the same weight that they overhead press, you know. And um, it's, it's, it's very, very um, case by case for me. Yeah, and if I chimed in, I would – I mean, I definitely agree with Tim and Lee. Like, I think it, there's there's certain scenarios where if – I mean, a lot of people are really good at one lift because they, they prioritize it, and that's what they like to do. Like, I you know me personally, like, I love deadlifting, so I'm, I'm, good, I'm good at deadlifting. Um, my squat numbers are not great, and I will say personally, in, 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 the, in the past year or so, um, I finally hit my 600-pound deadlift about a month ago, and I actually just kind of went into maintenance mode with my squat. Like, I didn't really stress my back squat that much. I actually, I actually started doing more front squatting um, and then just kind of supplementing, using, using the squat to supplement my deadlift just to kind of, like, maintain stuff, um, for lack of a better term. And so, I mean, me personally, like, I didn't really focus on my squat or, you know, bringing up my squat. I just kind of, like, maintained it um, while I was working on my deadlift. So, um, yeah, I, it, again, this is, like, the proverbial it depends answer. But, um, you know, it's it's. I think Lee nailed it when you just – there's so many other questions that need to be asked as far as training age and, you know, leverages and stuff like that. Yeah, it's true because, like, any, like, tall person I've ever trained that wanted to back squat, it just – looks like a melted candle when they're trying to get down and up and you're just like, yeah. you know what, yeah. let's maybe like not do this. <laughs> I mean, and that's, but, the, but, this, but then it, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a myth too, because we're automatically assuming that if they're tall, they're, they, they're not going to be good squatters. And, and Mike Robertson actually wrote a really good article a couple of weeks ago on why tall athletes should squat. Like with, you know, we're talking basketball players and, you know, guys over six, five. Um, and it was actually, that doesn't mean that we, they have to be doing heavy back squats. Like this could be goblet squat. It could be yeah. reaching squats. It could be all two K. I mean, honestly, you you want to you want to you want to know a squat variation that crushes everyone, which is a, it's a low load, very but a very high training effect. Is a, du a double kettlebell squat. 
you know, oh, an yeah. anterior loaded double kettlebell squat. Like I, I can front squat over 300 pounds, which doesn't suck. I mean, I'm not saying like I'm gonna, you know, an amazing, super strong person when it comes to squatting, but a 300 pound squat isn't it isn't tiny. Um, and then if I grab two 28 kilogram kettlebells and I do a set of 10 with that, I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, like. I don't know why. I, I mean, it's an anterior load, so it doesn't surprise me that it hammers my core. But I don't know if it's just because of the way the kettlebells are draped or I, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's an explanation for it. Um, but it's 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 you know, it's stuff like that. It's just like we can we can find a very um, we can find a squat variations that provide a high training effect that aren't really going to um, crush people, you know, if they're trying to build up one lift or another. I think with the kettlebells, it's like the way they sit on your front, that almost like crushes your lungs a little bit. So you can't like take deep breaths as you're going through and you're like, oh my God, why is this so hard? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an exercise that uh, it definitely is uh, it's a killer for like, you know, not just your lower body, but your upper body as well, just to hold that rack position. So I agree um, I, with a lot of my taller guys. I do prioritize the front squat if we use barbells. Yeah, so yep. um, there's there's also that on itself. Um, and, you know, looking at just different areas of their mobility, you know, and they might not have the, the hip anatomy that prov- that allows them to go through a great full range of motion with the squat, too. So, you know, uh, looking at ankle mobility, looking at uh, their dorsiflexion capability looking at their hip mobility and their hip anatomy like all those things are gonna sort of factor in when it comes to getting tall guys to really squat deep or squat well or just uh you know not look like a melted candle when they're going down and um there is so much more work that they are they're going through that they're doing in force times distance as they travel through that range of motion than the average guy um, the average height person. So, um, you know, this just means more time under tension to do what they're doing. Um, lighter loads might have a greater training effect than somebody else who uses a heavier load and does the same thing. Yep. So, uh, yeah, just a lot to think about. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get into is kind of your opinions about, you know, the conventional stance of a deadlift and sumo. Because I've been seeing like a oh, lot of no. posts, yeah, a lot of posts on <laughs> Facebook where they're like, if you're uh, going sumo, you're just cheating, <laughs> and like other memes and stuff like that recently. So I don't like for me, it's like if someone's levers are kind of all over the place and they feel more comfortable in sumo, like why the hell not just have them lift sumo? But It'd be kind of interesting to get your guys' take. Um, well, personally, like, it, it's all, like, listen, if I had an ideal situation where a person is proportioned properly and so on, then I'll probably practice all three, um, you know, conventional sumo, and uh, the third one I didn't mention is trap bar deadlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as trap bar deadlifting goes, it's probably my most go-to with my clientele and my populations that I work with. Um, I just don't see too much of a point of... Uh, having a bar block your shins if it's not for a certain reason if there's not a purpose to it like maybe like going for a certain competition or something like that but if your goal is just to move better and to hinge properly and to not be inhibited by your by your long levers or whatnot and you you want a proper uh, proper load without internal rotation or having to mix up your grip or anything like that and you're just you know bob from accounting then yeah do a do a trap bar deadlift that's sort of been my uh, my most used exercise in the last couple of years as far as deadlift variations go um, now wh- whereas uh, with a with a straight bar i will 
probably go, I like a hybrid of a medium sumo stance where you're not way out there, but you're, your, your arms, instead of the arms being just outside your shins, your shins are just outside your, your arms. So you can deadlift in kind of like your half like a squat stance almost. And, um, you know, it just it allows you to sit a little bit lower. It allows you to keep your chest up a little bit higher. And um, most people will stick with a double overhand grip when they do that as well. So it's kind of, it's a little bit healthier for them too. And uh, they feel a good, uh, a good drive without really having to worry about uh, being way too wide out there, right? And, um, you know, they travel through a great range of motion, and it feels pretty good. Can I go now? Because <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, Lee, that Lee hit it on the head. Like we could just end the conversation there. Like there's nothing he said that I that I disagree with. Um, it it absolutely boggles my mind that people will will shit on conventional versus sumo and that you're cheating if you're sumo. Because honestly, at the end of the day, I go as a coach. I go with whatever puts people in a better position, whatever feels better, and whatever feels more powerful. So if that, if I can find that, and if it ends up being a sumo, then I win. Like there's no rule stating that we, it has to be conventional versus sumo. Like a straight bar. I mean, especially in powerlifting circles. Um, I mean, honestly, you're gonna tell a, a sumo deadlifter that lifts 800 pounds that that, that doesn't count. <laughs> like, um, he, he that he's not weak. Um, and, and, and it's just different. Like I, you know, the, the, the comeback that I make a lot with conventional versus sumo, um, especially for the people who think sumo is cheating is between the conventional and sumo, my femur doesn't change length all of a sudden, like it stays the same length, whether I'm doing conventional or sumo. And what I lose in sagittal plane, when I do conventional, I gain in frontal plane when I do sumo. So it's, yes, we can, we can make a case that yeah, there's less range of motion and whatnot but it's different like it's just it's not cheating um and we could make a case that generally speaking a sumo deadlift is going to be harder off the floor and easier at lockout and conventional is going to be the exact opposite so you know it's at the end of the day it comes down to leverages where where what puts people in a better positions um and then and then people just shutting the hell up when it comes to <laughs> arguing over the internet because at the end of the day it doesn't matter um, you know, and, and I, and I'm right there with Lee too. And that I, my go-to right out of the gate for most people is trap bar deadlift. Um, you know, that's, that's going to be the safest bet for non-competing power lifters, you know, for, as far as keeping people healthy. So, um, you know, that, at the, the I, I, I use trap, I, almost everyone that walks the door at core, my place here in Boston is starting with a, with a trap bar deadlift. You know, then once they hit a certain number and, and they maybe they want to experiment with a straight bar, I'll be like, maybe we'll do it. But um, for a lot of for most of my people, they're 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 just going to be sticking with trap bar most of the time anyways. But the whole conventional versus sumo deadlift cheating, not cheating um, really does make me roll my eyes quite often. It's just um <laughs> And the people who say that are like, you know, like I pulled my, my 600 pound, it's, it's modified sumo is what Lee was talking about. So I pulled 600 pounds and I, I posted it on YouTube. So it's like, I just wanted it up on YouTube so I could just link to it whenever. What do you think the first comment was on that, on that video? The very first comment. It said, what you use the trap bar? That, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I, it was like, what, what's your conventional PR? And I just yeah. want to be like, 
what does it matter? Like, like, you. Why didn't you come here and pull the six hundred pounds and show me, show me how how much easier it is? You know, you like, should have said to that. You should have been like seven fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, my my best conventional actually is five seventy. So it's not it's not that far off of my sumo. But you know, it's just, it, for my back and 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 for helping me keep my back healthy. It's just a better fit for. Um, for me, so and but I and I think the 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 heaviest pulls in history are conventional. Um, you know, I'm sure there's there might be something behind that. There might not be. I don't, I don't know. There's Greg Knuckles. That might be something he could answer. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's such a silly argument to be having. But unfortunately, it's never going to go away. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to get into a Facebook question because we're kind of talking about you know what kind of fits the athlete. And Patrick Umphrey from Eat Train Progress, a little shout out to the, his group. Um, he wanted to know, uh, he wants to hear about Tony Gentlecoller talk about hip shifting and asymmetry in the squat. If I recall correctly, Tony is a fan of using slightly asymmetrical stances if needed, but I'd be curious to when he determines whether or not something needs to be addressed pertaining to an asymmetry and or slight hip shift during the squat. So that it's interesting because, you know, Dean and I do our workshop together and I I take the day and I talk about shoulders and he takes day two and talks about hips. And he spends the first, I don't know, hour of day two talking about hip anatomy and and demonstrating to people that everyone has different hip structures in in terms of width. The, the way that acetabulum are pointing, um, the way from how 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 uh, um, long the femoral necks are, and what how they're pointing, um, and it, it he he uses it as a as a as a as a point of of demonstrating to people that everyone is different. Like there's no no one is the same. There's no such thing as textbook technique. Like we've been we've been programmed to think that we have to squat with toes pointing forward. We have to be in a symmetrical stance, and if you don't do that, um, you're somehow less of a human being. I don't, I don't know, but, um, it's, uh, you know, as far as, uh, asymmetrical stances, uh, if we know that everyone's different and we have two pelvises or pelvi, whatever the appropriate term is here, and we know that one can be antiverted, one can be retroverted and, you know, even the acetabulum can be different, uh, depths, um, you know, or, or different degrees of shallowness and even different degrees of how, um, uh, wide they are, uh, and there's two of them, uh, it, it makes sense that an, uh, an asymmetrical stance might feel better for a lot of people and help prevent that hip shift. Because honestly, like, you know, he brought up the hip shift. Like sometimes, it, more often than not, if I see somebody shift to the right, for example, so they're, they're descending into the, into the bottom of a squat and you kind of see a little shift to the right, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll say, okay, on this next rep, I want you to just out-toe that right foot a little bit. Just get a little bit more external rotation. And what do you think ends up happening? The hip shift goes away. And, they're, and then they're going to think – not only that, it, it feels better. Uh, they feel more stable. Um, but then automatically they're going to think, well, aren't I going to cause more asymmetry if I, if I, if I adopt that? Well, I would argue, well, if you're trying to pound a square peg into a round hole, wouldn't that be causing more damage? So, um, I know Lee will probably have a lot to, to, to point in on this cause he's, he's a little bit more, um, uh, anatomy savvy than, than I, but, uh, but it's just, it's, it's time and time again, I, I've worked with people and, you know, just, it might 
just even like shifting like stagger stance, one toes out, one toes in, or more in. Um, I'm just looking for what's going to feel uh, better, more powerful, and and the determining factor of all that is if there's pain. Like I think because he asked like when would I know if something needs to be addressed? Well, no matter what I do, if if there's if there's some kind of pinchiness or pain involved, obviously I'm going to get a physical therapist in on it too to get to get something diagnosed. But if there's pain, then yeah, maybe we have to work on um, some soft tissue work or maybe it's, it's getting you know, getting in them and uh, some breathing patterns to get in a better uh, um, rib position. I mean, there's a lot of things that come into play, but um, to me, I'm not, I'm not um, at all phased by having people adopting a, an asymmetrical stance when they squat. I, I find that it helps most people and it hurts. Um, yeah, with me as well, like, um, I, I don't have as much experience with regard, with regards to asymmetries and squats, like, like setting up in that way. That is, um, the, the, the route that I usually take usually has to do with just troubleshooting the movement, see if they can perform it more properly by just mentally focusing on shifting their attention to certain, uh, areas that might be, you know, shifting in this direction or that direction or whatever. Um, but also, just looking at uh, like what he what Tony said earlier was uh, was was good with regards to um, hip anatomy and so on and um, just you know how how deep socketed the hip the hip uh, capsule is or how wide out they are and whether or not you're using a stance that reflects that um, where where the hip is uh, pointing as well like all those things the femoral the femoral neck um, so all those things are going to play into um, and whether or not they're exactly even on either side of the body that's huge right. Uh, there's some people who were born with one leg shorter than the other. So what happens then, right? Like there's going to be all sorts of different issues, you know, and then even if we go up the body into the spine and whether or not there's a scoliosis, there's going to be compensation above and below that scoliosis in order to make something feel or appear normal. So um, for the, for all of those reasons, um, uh, a squat, well, a squat stance or an asymmetry in the squat isn't necessarily something that, uh, you have to be one track minded or black and white in the way that you address it. And uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be too, too scared of, um, you know, uh, a slightly off center squat stance to, to even things out. And if you want me to be completely honest, like my typical squat stance in my own, in my own training, um, it's, I've found myself sometimes with my right foot an, an inch or two in front of my left foot when I look down mm -hmm. and that's just that's just kind of the comfortable place for me to be and you know I'm not if I'm between a set of 385 and going to 395 or something like that like I'm not about to change my stance around when I've noticed this is happening right so uh, it's, it's something that uh, it's something that seems to be a, a natural occurrence sometimes um, so yeah, like looking at uh, things skeletally like that is, is one uh, definitely one route that I would take, and also looking at things from um, a muscular standpoint. You know, if there are mobility restrictions or some kind of issues with the muscle muscle tightness or whatnot that you can sort of uh, address, then go ahead and address them. But if nothing's really changing and you have the same relative balance throughout, then don't be too afraid. Don't be too afraid of uh, that that um, slightly off center squat. Now, if you have like one foot that's three feet further forward than the other foot and one foot is like turned out to 45 degree angle and the other one's straight ahead well okay then you've got some issues right but uh i'm sure that what we're talking about here in general is just subtleties and little things that a trained eye will pick up on and um those are things that i don't think uh, i think the people stew over a little bit too much 
Yeah, and let's let's not be scared of of calling it what it is too. Sometimes as coach, as a coach, I'll just say, hey, don't do that, <laughs> and that's and and, and 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 it fixes. So I mean, and and, and even before I, I started talking about asymmetries, like I'm not telling people like, hey, we're out of the gate. We're gonna. I want you to do this stance. Like sometimes it's just a matter of me like. Uh, honing in a little bit more on them, adopting a better bracing strategy, learning what, learning to get like their their abs on, you know, pulling down on the bar, getting their lats engaged, um, pulling down into the squat rather than dropping into the squat, um, you know, corkscrewing their feet into the ground. So a lot of times, if I could just get them to adopt more tension and to maintain it while they're doing their squat, you know, finding their midfoot and keeping foot pressure in the ground, um, a lot of times that cleans it up. So it isn't like my I'm I'm having everyone squat with an asymmetrical stance, but I'm not I'm not um, uh, turning my back against it either. All right, I got another Facebook question for you guys. Uh, so this one's from Sylvia. She asks, in general, for someone with limited time, which exercises are most bang for your buck for improving overhead stability for Olympic lifts, particularly if the range of motion is not an issue? Huh. If range of motion is not an issue to help overhead stability, well, I mean, we're obviously going to be talking about some kind of pull exercise, in my opinion, to help the scapular stability, um, you know, uh, stay on point. So I would probably say, personally, I would probably say a row pattern like a seated row, but from a three-quarter angle, an angle where you're you're slightly above, so that you get the best of both worlds from overhead pulling and uh, horizontal pulling, and um, you know, in, in that regard, you get to you know train the scapular muscles, which are uh, sort of comprise the rotator cuff, get them nice and strong, get them uh, get them full of blood and whatnot, and help uh, just help your general stability of the scapulae, and um, at the same time, you sort of get an angle, a force angle that's a little bit closer to overhead, without putting your shoulder into any sort of risk like a like a uh, loaded pull-up wood, for example, um, where most, where, where there are some people who might not um, have a shoulder that is um, as resilient to an exercise like that, that a lot of people will mistake for uh, nothing but good. So um, I would choose a row pattern and sort of uh, angle it upwards a little bit. I think that would be a great, uh, great option. Yeah, I think the only one I would add is maybe doing some um, uh, overhead carries. Um, whether it's bottoms up or with a kettlebell or even with um, a barbell and just hanging um, kettlebells off the side, off bands, like hanging band training. I know uh, Joel Seaman talks about that quite often. Um, but, just, you know, that's, I mean, that's going to train overhead stability like crazy, not to mention core and pelvic stability and all that stuff too. So um, that would probably be one that I would add in there. Yeah, like whenever I'm in doubt for like shoulder stability stuff, I like I just go right to the kettlebells for like arm bars and things like that. It just yeah. kind of clears yep. up a lot of stuff. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I, and if you, like, you if you go bottoms up, there you go. <laughs> like that's done and done. That's a, that, yeah, there. That's a, you don't that, that that will take care of that that will definitely uh, take care of itself. Now, Lee, I had a question for you because um, a couple weeks ago you did a tweet about lat tightness, and I was kind of curious, like, what would you change up in a deadlift for a client who has tight shoulders and lats, like, with a, almost like a rounded posture? What kind of, like, variations would you give a client like that? For deadlifting, uh, well, 
first of all, again, like, are we going conventional? Are we going sumo? Are we going trap bar, right? So if, it, if, if we're working with a barbell, I might switch to the trap bar because it's a little bit easier for somebody to get the chest up that way, especially if they have uh, leverages that aren't really favorable for it. So that would be one thing. But um, I would take them off of the bar and take a look at how their spine is extending for their thoracic region. Because, you know, the tight lat has to come from something, right? There's got to be a reason why this happened in the first place. The muscles don't just get tight because no reason, right? Um, so whether it's uh, due to poor thoracic extension and so you're always being stuck in that closed position all the time with your with your skeletal anatomy um, that could be a huge a huge factor as to what's contributing to um, to the lats being so so um, gummy and tight um, so that would be one thing that I'd do is uh, train a little bit of thoracic extension or uh, maybe even some supplementary exercise to get the lower traps firing or something like that um, and yeah a little bit of soft tissue work on the lats might help too so um, uh, in terms of form modifications, I would probably go to, uh, go to the trap bar and focus on uh, high handle, for example, in order to just uh, get the, the lats a little bit of a chance to um, help the uh, stop internally rotating that arm where, you, where your arms are tethered to a barbell. Instead, your, your, your arms are tethered to a neutral grip position so you can sort of externally rotate against the, the internal proclivity that the, the, uh, the lats will have for a lifter with tight lats. So um, those are the kind of the two things that I would sort of focus on and look at the spine and then look at the, uh, look at the lat and the, 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 the variation of the deadlift that you're using. What about you, Tony? I concur with uh, what Lee said. <laughs> there, uh, there, there, I mean, he, there's nothing I could add to that. Like, I mean, <laughs> like how many, tell somebody to, to roll out their lats. Most, most people don't, yeah. you know, especially if you get in the gummy area, like where it's lat, Terry's long head tricep, like that sucks. <laughs> and, uh, and most people, if, they, if you get them to roll, that air, roll out that area, um, then maybe do some like, you know, sideline extension rotation drills to kind of open up that area. Maybe do a pec release too, but then, yeah, trap bar. I mean, it, it, he nailed it. There's not. There's yeah. That that was perfect answer. Yeah, because I see people with like like tight lats, or usually like the people who sit in their desks all day. And then the client that I have in mind right now, he's a cyclist, and you know, in one weekend he can like cycle up to ten hours in that hunched position. And he's like, I really want to deadlift heavy, but I'm like, but fuck, your form and posture looks horrible. <laughs> 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 that's that's a good response too. Like no, yeah. just say just say no. We're not doing that today. Yeah. <laughs> but on like a serious note, like one of the questions I've always had, and I've had a couple of different opinions. Like when people are lifting really heavy on their deadlift, and you know it's one of those grinding reps, and it almost looks like their you know scapula and shoulders kind of just drop forward, but the rest of their spine is neutral, like. Do you like seeing that or do you want to see those like shoulders like suck back completely? And because like I've seen a lot of videos posted online where people are deadlifting as heavy as possible and you're like, it kind of looks good. It kind of doesn't. So I was just kind of curious about your guys' take on that. My answer I to that is my answer to that is if your shoulders and your back and all those things are sucked back the way that you said for wicked form, then it's not your heaviest deadlift. That's it. You know, it's not your heaviest deadlift because your form is perfect. Your form hasn't broken down at all. That means that there's room in the tank for your technique. Well, as bad as the sounds to, to deteriorate a little bit and, and it's not quite the grinder that you think it is right for training purposes. Cause you know what? Doing a one rep max, that's not training. That's a test. That's a fitness test. That's a, that's a, that's a strength test. 
and there's no real import other than powerlifters to do a one rep max test as part of your training on a regular basis. So, in my opinion, I think that uh, if you can hold, if you can hold that for like uh, most people who are training, they want to train with perfect form, with good uh, technique, and so on. So you don't want to see that sort of thing happen. But with the videos that you're mentioning and stuff, where people are really throwing down a really really heavy lift, where it's their like single rep max and so on, and then the the weight will probably force their bodies out of position in some way, and it's a matter of how much you can sort of withstand while you're while you're standing up with that bar. I constantly question why <laughs> like you know like as i can as i get older i sort of just wonder like what what's the glamour in doing this anyway if you're just a recreational lifter but you know people just like to lift as much as they can and so that's the reality that comes attached to this so um yeah like i don't uh advocate it but at the same time it kind of is inevitable if you're lifting heavy enough right like who, who's done a pr with really really perfect form and is it really their pr yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's PR, I mean, lifting weights doesn't tickle. So, I mean, when, when someone, form is going to go awry when you're doing a max effort lift. And where it becomes a problem is when people get in the habit of always testing their strength and not building it. So, I mean, I think when, when someone's testing week after week after week, I got to test it, my one rep max, I'm going to test one, my one rep max, and they and their form falters every single time. Yeah, I think that's an issue. But when you're, when you actually, Build strength, then yeah, you wanna you wanna kind of test the fruits of your labor, and you do a one rep uh, one rep max, uh, and your form breaks down a little bit. Like I mean, that's almost to be expected. Like it's gonna it's not gonna be like a a super locked in spine the whole way through. Like something's gonna move. So no, I mean not the not the end of the world. Especially with those little muscles too, right? Like we're talking about, you were saying about the shoulders dropping first yeah. where the spine stays neutral. So you got to think about, you got your big lats, you got your, your big spine extensors like your um, your uh, uh, erector spine, spinae and your QL and so on that are helping keep your your uh, lumbar region nice and slightly arched or neutral or whatever so it looks good. But, you know, you have your little teres muscles and your rhomboids and your rear deltoids and your lower traps and so on. Like, those muscles up there that aren't, like, huge beefy muscles, they're just, you know, they're scapular stabilizers. So, of course, you're not going to have quite as much force as you can put into that when you've yeah. got 550 pounds that you're trying to pick up, right? Like, something's going to go. And Usually there is a lot of thoracic rounding on, on if you watch a lot of elite deadlifters, like, they're, where, where do they move through their spine? It's right. usually in their mid and upper back. It's their lower back is usually spot on. So, um, you know, it's just a matter. Of, I mean, but they're also very experienced lifters. Like they've they've kind of trained themselves enough to like get out of precarious positions when they get into it. So when we're talking about beginners, yeah, I would try to refrain from that as much as possible. Um, but once you get start getting into the elite level, um, you know, they they they're they're staying out of end range more often than not. How are you guys doing on time? Do you guys have like another 10 minutes or so? I do. Perfect. Because like the other question I wanted to kind of get like clarification on is when do you guys suggest using weight belts for squats and deadlifts? Oh, like um, you mean like like an actual belt to yeah. like a lifting belt? Yep. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny that you say that because, um, the last like month and a half, I've actually been using my first belt ever, you know, and, um, that's as a product of me battling with discogenic issues in my lower back that have not, 
really been able to be solved without or without uh, without without ditching the deadlift altogether you know it's just truthfully it's not necessarily an exercise that everybody can handle and if there's medical issues there then you're going to have to take a couple of seconds to think about whether or not it should belong in your programming or whether other exercises will do the job to master the hip hinge and to master uh, the the development of the posterior chain musculature right so uh, in my case you know I've deadlifted for years always done it raw Always no straps, no belt, no nothing. And um, I've just started using a belt now as sort of like the last resort. This is the last thing, you know. I know that I have uh, fairly strong, like I've got strong movements and so on. And I know that uh, the trunk muscles have been doing what they should be doing as well. But this is, this is now getting into a medical area where we're talking about uh, disc herniation risks and we're talking about uh, uh, different discogenic issues and SI joint problems and so on. I've been... You know, I've got a chiropractor who I've seen very, very regularly over the years to uh, to deal with any sort of uh, nicks and, and so any sort of uh, problems that I've had with the deadlift um, as a result of deadlifting. And, you know, even with I videotape a lot of my lifts, especially the big ones and where deadlifts are concerned, like I've never put myself into that camelback turtle back pulling position where, you know, the form is just cringeworthy. I've always had what appears to be quite decent form where my back is staying flat. And still, whether it's the bottom of the lift or the top of the lift, I, I sometimes have these tweaks and these issues that uh, stuff goes out of whack and sometimes it's quite debilitating. So anyway, last resort, I got myself a belt and it's changed it's been a world of change for me in terms of just creating that stability and the support for the spine that I personally need. So um, what I think about the belt in general, what I think about the use of the belt, it's whether or not somebody relies on them too early, right? And um, if somebody does not have a foundation and they don't have a lifting background and so on, and they're using that to pull the empty bar and they're using the belt to pull 95 pounds and so on, like they're they're giving themselves the short end of the stick and they're selling themselves short on the gains so that they can, they can create, especially if they're otherwise healthy people, right, um, who can deadlift raw and no problem. So um, I would definitely look at, at creating more core strength and just creating more raw strength for that person first and only really using a belt if, you know, if need be, to be honest. So need be being like, you know, if there's a medical issue like I just listed myself, or if, um, you know, you're talking about somebody who's lifting those kind of PR numbers in a meet or something like that, and you know what? All right, belt up because you're going to be training under these 90% loads very often, and belt up because you want to protect yourself when it's coming up to the meet day and so on. Like, those are the kinds of circumstances where I would use it or those kind of scenarios. Um, otherwise, you know, I encourage my lifters or my clients to, um, to lift raw and, and try to get as strong as possible while doing so. Yeah, and in terms of me, I think um, it's one thing if you're somebody who's doing uh, bosu ball bicep curls uh, with the belt on, uh, and, then, and it's another thing if you're. I mean, we've all seen that guy in a commercial gym, right? He's he's doing it for that. He's doing it for lat pull downs. He's doing it to go get water. Uh, it's just he's always wearing a belt. Um, that's one thing. I think that would be a, an incorrect use of the belt. Um, but then on the other the other end of the spectrum. When we're talking about spinal stability, intra-abdominal pressure, 
um, and just giving people a little bit more peace of mind and confidence when to, to lift heavy weight uh, when we start getting into 85, 90% plus of one rep max. Uh, I think there's a lot of efficacy to, to using a belt. Um, you know, and I, I think there's also, uh, there is a technique involved with using the belt correctly too. I mean, we we want to get that 3D expansion where we're not just pushing to the front of the belt. We want to push to the side and to the back. So learning how to use a belt correctly um, comes into the conversation too. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan when, when the time is appropriate. Awesome. So I think it'd be a kind of a good place to stop there because I feel bad for taking up more than an hour of you guys' time. <laughs> well, we spent 15 minutes talking about <laughs> <laughs> But uh, maybe to like finish off, you guys could kind of like plug your next like, you know, talk or product or something that's going to be coming up in the future to kind of let the audience know what Tony and Lee are doing. Well, I don't sell anything, so I don't have anything to plug like that. But, um, you know, I have got uh, just wrote a blog article on uh, my website, leeboystraining.com. Uh, just got released uh, just yesterday, actually, so I'm not too sure when this podcast is going to go live. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's my latest one, and uh, it's just talking about the word fitness and whether or not it's a word that we're overusing, misusing, have we bastardized it or whatnot. Um, it's a pretty important uh, subject to, to get people to start really critically thinking about what they see in the industry. And uh, my next blog article is going to be something that is um, pretty important release, especially from a personal level. So I think that it's, uh, it's going to be a good one to look out for. And uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that so that uh, the anticipation can build. Nice. I think I know what that blog post is going to be about. So you I probably I, do. I, I will. I will. I will. I'm going to bet myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, no, I always love Lee's stuff, so I'm actually going to go read that other article. But um, uh, me personally, the home base is TonyJohncourt.com. Um, I'll be speaking at uh, the Mid-Atlantic NSDA conference in Philadelphia uh, in two weekends, which reminds me I need to actually prepare my presentations. <laughs> uh, I have not done that yet. Um, and I'm also um, Brian Cron and I are going to be um, we're doing a, a beta group or a guinea pig group for uh, um, a program that we're doing for the 40 plus lifter. So we're looking forward to that. That's going to start in early December. Um, you know, we're going to do a beta test, take take a bunch of people through four months of training, and then get their feedback and see what works, see what doesn't work, um, and then hopefully make that into a um, a pretty kick-ass product and and program for people to follow at some point next year so um, that's kind of what I have in the, in the works in the near future sweet and I think the other cool thing that you do Tony is like other coaches products you actually review them and then post yeah. it on your blog I'm like this, this is what we need because like you know like all the coaches try to promote their stuff but you know having another like I I I, uh, I like to think of myself as somebody who who's a good um, uh, relayer of good information so you know if I if I point people in the direction of some uh, of Lee's articles or you know a Mike Boyle product or a Mike Robertson product or a girls gone strong product um, you know and it helps get people better and gives them good information and you know I, I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job yeah, and we need more information like that and less Tracy Anderson stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, I want to thank you two for all your time. This was plain awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it, Rafael. That was great. We got to yeah, do it. Thanks a lot. We have to do like a whole hour of movies sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Talk about like, a, like a 2017, our top 10 or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, we should do it. Review them. 
<laughs> I'm good for that. I... All right, you guys. So that's going to wrap up episode 85 with Tony and Lee. Hopefully you guys got something out of it. And remember, if you ever have questions for my guests, like just reach out to me, DM me on Instagram, email me, reach me out on Facebook, whatever you got to do, because, you know, this is for you. I want you to guys get better. So don't feel shy to send in your questions. Any questions, a good question. And, you know, I don't want to be selfish and just keep talking about what I want to learn from my guests. So feel free to bring them in. And please, 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 please share this podcast with everybody you know. Subscribe to it on iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, whatever you got to do. Share it. Spread the word. And I will be forever grateful for you guys. And until next week, we'll see you again.